Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1960 Francois Truffaut film, Shoot the Piano Player. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, I cannot wait to talk about this movie. I actually think this movie is a testament to what this podcast has done for me. Um, Because I went on a journey with this movie this week. I watched it the first time. And it was fine. Like, I didn't think much of it. I'm like, you know, okay, I've seen film noir and I see what it's doing. And and I read a bunch about it and I watched it again. And and it's more than any of that. I sat and thought about this movie a lot. And I got to this morning and even this morning as I was coming into work, I kept thinking different things about this movie. It, it really started to work on me. And now I'm like, this is actually kind of great. This movie's got a lot of interesting things going on. So I think... Um, had I not watched it in the context of I really want to think about this, it would have been a movie that I just watched and it kind of went away. And instead, it's like, oh, I, I really think this is interesting. So I want to start today with that with that uh, <laughs> that out there that um, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited for this. Um, what is your history with th- let's just say, say this film in particular? And then I want to pull that out to think about Truffaut in general. Yeah, this film in particular, I watched it first time, um, I don't know, maybe about eight or 10 years ago, I kind of went on a French New Wave jag, and I just watched a whole bunch of, of New Wave stuff. I watched several Godards, I watched a couple Truffauts, and so I, this is just kind of part of my trying to educate myself in the French New Wave. Um, and so what is what is your history with Truffaut, especially in terms of like, where does this fall mm. in... Truffaut movies that you had seen like is this early on is this uh you got around to it yeah it's more it's more I got around to it I, I really haven't done Truffaut in the the traditional way you're supposed to do Truffaut I did not start with the 400 blows for example that's what you're supposed to talk about with Truffaut my first Truffaut film actually if I'm recalling right when I was in high school was Day for Night uh which is uh one of his kind of a Amer- really another one of his american inspired films and then the, uh, the story of adele h uh i had a big crush on isabella johnny um i mean those were those were really those, that was the early Truffaut i did i did in high school and then it was kind of a long long gap after that so my my Truffaut is not very complete i know for example that his bride wore black was one of the inspirations for the kill bill films for tarantino uh, of course, he shows up as an actor in the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So, so I got a smattering of Truffaut. I, I'm not as deep in my Truffaut catalog as I am with Godard, for example. Oh, I have seen Jules and Jim. I take that back. I did when I was doing my New Wave thing. I also did saw Jules and Jim. So this was interesting to me because in reading about him, and actually it goes back to, and I need to correct myself from last week. I kept calling Mark Harris Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Mark Harris is the one who wrote Pictures of the Revolution. Um, as I was um, reading the Mark Harris book, when he doesn't do Bonnie and Clyde, he actually does another movie, which turns out is the first Truffaut thing I've ever I ever saw. I just didn't know it, which is uh, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that in high school. Um I didn't. I don't remember other than I remember reading the book and then seeing. Oh, there's a movie of this. I'm going to watch that. Um, but I did see. I think one of my first Criterion Channel viewings was I watched the 400 Blows because I'm kind of along with this podcast working my way through uh, the sight and sound list. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, that's one that that sort of jumps out at me. 
And so I brought the baggage of 400 blows into this movie, which actually feels appropriate because there's a big degree to which Truffaut is kind of responding to, mm-hmm. to that. And I, so I have to, I need to start by saying I loved for the 400 blows. I thought that movie was great. I love it. And it, it seems related um, to a little bit more to like, neorealism a little bit more to Patir Panchali so it's like it's like I really love that movie so so part of my journey with shoot the piano player was <laughs> the fact that I love the 400 blows and it's like oh this is really different I mean this is a zag from the 400 blows he's going and doing something and he intentionally feels that way I mean he he uh he thought that the 400 blows he says was too French and he wanted to um not be trapped into being the filmmaker who makes movies like that so he wanted to do uh, a more sort of genre subject um, which at first kind of hurt because it's like I love that movie and now you're saying oh I don't want to do that which also makes me feel like are you dismissing this thing that I loved that you did and I don't think that's the case necessarily but I get the idea of feeling like I don't want to be trapped in that yeah that's exactly the way he felt about it Sam you know the 400 blows was you know it was his first feature film not his first film but his first feature film um, and it, it, I, I think the success kind of took everybody by surprise. A lot of it was the timing of when it show, showed it can. Um, and so you're right. I mean, he, he said that when he made, uh, when he made um, Shoot the Piano Player, he said he wanted to, he was free as the air, but he chose his own constraint. So he's a French filmmaker who's transposing an American noir novel into the French context. And uh, in his career, uh, Truffaut adopted five different uh, uh, English language novels. And a lot of people think Shoot the Piano Player was his most successful um, effort. And, and he says, at one point, he says, I know there's nothing an audience hates more than the change of tone. But nonetheless, I hugely enjoy changing the tone. And of course, that's one of the key ways, one of the ways, so I think it's more than one, but it's one of the ways in which you could see why Arthur Penn, when he directed Bonnie and Clyde, looked back to shoot the piano player. Because I think the first thing that hits you is, oh my gosh, what is going on? Are, do, are, do we have, it opens as a very serious noir. We have rain-soaked streets at night. We have a man running. We don't know exactly why he runs into a lamppost. You know, so, oh, this must be a noir. And then you get this weird conversation about uh, this Marriage. guy him <laughs> right. up and talks about you know, loving his wife. Uh, and then you get these gangsters who initially look really threatening, and then they're kind of comical Keystone Cop characters. So it, to me, it's it, there's such a straight line in terms of tone and even to a certain degree characterization from this film to Bonnie and Clyde. Well, it's interesting because I, I mean, knowing that he was he was like one of the first people they went to uh, uh, to to Newman and Benton to think about directing it's like i i watched this and thought oh i kind of want to see his bonnie and clyde now like i think it would have been very it would have been very interesting to see what he would do with that it would it would be very different than what arthur penn made i think but like i would be here for it i'd be very very interested uh, one question i have because uh, i because uh, i've laid my cards on the table in terms of what i know about Truffaut, like if we're looking at the 400 blows and shoot the piano player which is more indicative of Truffaut as a filmmaker Oh, I think 400 blows. He, okay. He, I think that's he, okay. Well, uh, okay. Uh, of course I can't make any statement like that without qualifying. Um, so I said, uh, obviously 400 blows because Truffaut had a lifelong interest in children. 
Uh, he loved making films about and with children. And of course, uh, uh, Fido in this film is, is from the 400 Blows. Right. So that was my first response. However, it's also true that romance was one of Truffaut's long interests in all of his films. And uh, Shoot the Piano Player is fundamentally uh, about love. Uh, he says in it, it says in the film, the men in it to only talk about women and the women only talk about men. So I could argue both ways, uh, because I think I think you need both those films together to kind of get a picture of Truffaut. And then, of course, there's the fact, as I already alluded to, that he just he loved Hollywood films. He loved noir. He said at one point, and I really don't know if this is an estimate or actual count. He said at one point he had seen fifteen hundred American films. Hmm. Um, and of course, with, and he also, uh, I, I, somebody said that I had read that he actually watched Citizen Kane 30 times. Um, and one of the interesting things about the French filmmakers' relationship to those American films they were seeing right after World War II is they didn't necessarily understand what, the, what was going on. Their English wasn't that great, but they picked up, as a result, the visual language of those films. So that's how this film is so much. I mean, there was a lot of dialogue from the original novel it was based on. But at the same time, it's just visually so saturated with um, Hollywood style. Well, and it's interesting because the other thing as I was watching this is I kept thinking about, oh, if I was going to do a double feature with this and another movie, like there's so many things that this would pair nicely with. Like you could do this and Bonnie and Clyde to be interesting. And this comes out as the same year that Godard's Breathless comes out. And both of those are definitely interested in American films and interested in in noir pieces, but also are doing new things and and they're related to, I mean, they're so, so, I mean, those are the, those were the first two, but there, there will be more as we go through this conversation where I think, Oh, watching these two movies together, I actually think I ultimately, I think this and the 400 blows make a great double feature in, in, in interesting ways. Um, they're very different movies, but, uh, but. Um, well, I, I have to sort of hear this. I mean, of course, Truffaut wrote, uh, wrote the, the, the scenario, the original for story for breathless. And then right? you'll notice that the policeman from breathless, Daniel Bollinger, uh, he shows up in this film as one of the, as the, as the gangster Ernest. So he oh, was. I the, didn't see he that. He was the policeman relentlessly hunt, hunting in Breathless. Um, if I were doing a pairing, as long as we're on that topic, I would actually pair it with Jean-Pierre Melville's La Samurai, uh, which we watched a few months ago. As a, I mean, that's a that's not a contrast. That's more. Here's two different takes on uh, noir from French filmmakers. Oh, I that would that works really well as well. I I, I like when things get in conversation. I mean the putting things side by side like that makes for some interesting conversation. So, I mean, we've watched a lot of noir films over the last uh, couple of years. Um, so this ticks a lot of the boxes, you know, like, like if you are, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, so I just, I sort of went through the list cause I usually ask you like, what makes this a noir? So I thought, well, I will point to those things. Um, so you get the voiceover, right. Mm -hmm. Which is, which is used sporadically, but interestingly, yeah. I think to give a little interiority to, um, to, to Charlie, I'm going to call him Charlie, even though he has two yeah. names because most people call him Charlie. Um, we definitely get, you know, this kind of crime shadowy underworld. That's sort of part of this story. Um, uh, we get a character running from his past. Now, mm -hmm. to me, that's where the story is really interesting is 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 some of that. Um, we get an extended flashback sequence mm -hmm. um, right in the middle of the film. I mean, that felt like this. This feels like out of the past in some ways where it's yeah. like we're trucking along and then all of a sudden it's like a hard stop. Let's go to a different story that happened long ago. And then all of a sudden we show back up to the point where the first time I saw it, it felt really abrupt that 
we walk, they walk into the apartment. We see she has the poster and then all of a sudden we're in flashback and it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of great, but it was off putting like, Whoa, what, what, what happened? We didn't, he didn't set me up that we were going to flashback when they walked in. And you also get the, um, uh, you know, characters with double identities, you know, yeah. so you have Edward and Charlie and that's, that's part of him kind of running from his past. Um, so, are there other 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 big noir things that I missed here? I mean, some of the visual stuff, obviously, but no, I think I think you hit them all. Uh, the, the, you pretty much hit my list. Um, I, I do like the scene towards the end where his brother hands him the gun and says the gun is man's best friend, which is a little noirish. And then, but I also think the theme of not being able to escape the past and how it kind of gets doubled in the film because it's true for Charlie, but it's also true for Teresa. Uh, and she, I believe, is the one who says, not warm before she jumps out the window, what you did yesterday stays with you today. Uh, and so I think you're right. I, I mean, I, I would connect it probably most strongly with Out of the Past. Um, I'd also connect it with another noir, which we haven't seen yet, but it might be coming up in a, in a while, is uh, Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. Uh, that's another theme of that noir as well. So, so with Out of the Past, we have yet another pairing that I thought about. So, okay, so yes. we're, we're keeping on this theme. So um, I also like how... And I realized like noir is not a, it's not a, a clear formula because we have lots of things that mm-hmm. fit into it, whether it is Sunset Boulevard as a noir is very different than, you know, out of the past is very different than, um, but what I, what I thought was interesting is uh, the way that I feel like this puts twists on what I think of as like conventional noir things. So for example, the past that Charlie's running from it's not really like, like I was expecting because it it's it feels so loaded, like when his brother comes in at the beginning and it's like, well, at some point we're gonna learn about his past. And I and I so I kept expecting, like, okay, is his past going to be this like he has a criminal past or something he's hiding from? But when we get that first, you know, the big flashback, we realize that his own past is not really one of his own sort of crime or anything like that, you know, and instead he's running from, we see him running from his family. Um, like, like there is this, um, well, okay. Uh, here's the thing. There's two flashbacks in this movie. One of mm-hmm. them is a literal flashback where we see it. The other is the flash, the, the flashback of telling the story of leaving his brothers when they're young. Mm-hmm. And I love that he waits so long till we get to that mm-hmm. because it, to me, it's like, that's in some ways, like, the real thing that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So it's, so it's almost like the Therese story is almost like a misdirect where it's like, Oh, so that's the thing. And it's sort of surprising. Cause there's almost this sense of like, that's really traumatic, but I don't see why that would lead him to kind of give up his life in some way. I mean, I, I do. And I don't like, like, so, so I like the, the sort of the, the fact that, that when we learn about his past, it's not, he's not running from his own life of crime, but he's running from maybe the uh, eventually the inevitability that he sees in like, well, this is where I come from and this is always going to be part of me. Yeah. So, right. So yeah, he's got He's got the, the double past that he's, that he's running, he's running from. And I love the way that Truvo kind of layers that. I also have to point out there's, uh, there's an, another couple of uh, Hollywood homages here. The, the obviously one, to, the obvious one to the Marx brothers, 
Uh, you have the four brothers, one of whom is named Chico. Uh, and then why we have one named for a dog, we don't know, but they point that out, Fido. Um, and then the, the fact that his, his pseudonym is, is, is Charlie is, and even his physical appearance has some suggestion that it's an homage to Charlie Chaplin uh, as, as well. So Truffaut just can't help but kind of layer those things in. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the story about his his wife, right? And what even so so if we t- if we treat that as the first revelation about his past i mean i think it's interesting that the uh the thing that 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 is the quote-unquote crime there is actually like a social or moral or personal transgression not a crime i mean Mm -hmm. this you know i mean it's it's not even really an affair it's the it's you know it is somebody who is uh put in a position to have to kind of make a make a a difficult moral choice and they make a choice and then they're haunted by it and then that leads to him being haunted by it um but that it's not a it's not something where it's like oh no if somebody found out about this like it wouldn't mean it wouldn't have to change his life necessarily but it might change the way he thinks about himself well and it's 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 also uh, it's a little ironic because one of the elements of his character of course is he has this shyness that he has to overcome so he's he's seen as somebody who doesn't really assert himself and so at the point when he reacts as he does to Teresa's confession right and he leaves the room even though he's telling himself you know i i, sh- I shouldn't it's it's he, so so the mo- very moment when he kind of asserts himself he says i'm not going to stand for this i'm going to walk out on her that becomes the moment that that's the turning point that's the actual tragic moment whereas if he had been more characteristically charlie at that point or edward and had had kind of taken her confession in and and not leaped to conclusions and acted rashly uh things could have been very different because because that's really the function of, of the voiceovers you know the voiceovers they're not used to convey narrative information which is often what happens in noir uh, but they're more used as a kind of interior uh, monologue uh, to get you kind of closer to, to the character. So that, I think the fact that you get the voiceover at the moment that he takes the action he does, it makes his action both more comprehensible for the audience and more tragic because we realize that almost against his better judgment, he did this. And then when he regrets his action, it's too late. And that, of course, is the classic noir dilemma. Even when you choose to do the right thing, it's almost always too late to reverse the consequences. Yeah. And, and the voiceover speaks to kind of his, you know, his insecurity. So we would, the, I think the first time we get voiceover is when he's walking with Lena and it's like, he wants to take her hand and he's, you know, and he's going through all this. So, so we know he has this insecurity. So it's what makes it interesting is the, 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 the sort of um, original sin of his wife, you know, when she has this affair, um, is about giving him an opportunity to make his career, which also then speaks to his own insecurity about like, am I not enough of a, of a, like of an artist that I could do this on my own, that somebody else has to make this sacrifice for me like that. That is all about insecurity as well. Right. So I, I, think, I think, I think that's, that's um really interesting. And then I, um I know Truffaut is a, is, is a big fan of Hitchcock, for example, out of the French new wave. I think the scene where he runs back in and you go to the window and then go down and see the body that, that I don't know. I mean, that felt like a, like a Hitchcock shot, which I thought, Oh, I wonder if that's what he's thinking about there. 
Well, but but again, this this kind of gets us to the the way that the the tone of this film shifts all over the place because, and that's the thing. If if you're not ready for that or you're not open to that, you're going to find it a very frustrating, unsatisfying film. So yes, you have that kind of Hitchcockian moment. But then I'm thinking about the fact that before that, you have him going to those book stalls, buying all those books on overcoming tim timidity. Yes, it's, it's comical. It's like he just pile he just reads these piles of books and then. You get him at the next press conference, right? Sitting there in that chair, so confidently smoking his cigarette and looking like this man who's overcome his <laughs> overcome his 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 his, uh, his problems. So I just I just love the way the film shoot you know film goes back and forth on that. But I also want to point out, since you mentioned the walk with Lena, there's a couple of really interesting things going on there. One is the again, there's a very comical element that. <laughs> As this monologue goes on, he doesn't even notice that she's no longer there, right? The camera, the camera pulls back and he's actually walking alone, basically talking to himself. But then you have that really obvious trick shot where she looks, she pulls out the compact uh, mirror. Right. And I mean, you know, it's, that's not what you can see through, through that mirror. And that's the other part of this film that, uh, and you, when you mentioned Hitchcock, I thought about this, where um, Truffaut keeps doing these little homages to kind of, remind you that you're watching a film so looking in that in that shot in the mirror that's an obvious trick shot um the later on in the film where is the, there's a description of the uh of the of the fight with plin and you get like a trip or the no description of the character of plin uh and you get this triptych which is probably an homage to abogance the uh, the great uh, French film director of the 1920s who actually shot his film Napoleon, so it had to be had to be shown on three screens simultaneously, uh, or you get the mother keeling over, right? When, you know, it's like again, it's like you're in the world all of a sudden of a Keystone Cop uh, comedy, and I mean, for me, it works. I think for a lot of people, it's really kind of off putting because they want to be inside the film in a way that this film in the one hand it draws you in but then it kind of pushes you away and says remember you're watching a film like that scene when he's in bed um with uh with clarice and she initially bears her breasts and then she he pulls up the sheet and says this is how they this is how it's done in the movies because exactly that's not something you could show in the u.s and in fact that 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 scene was cut when the film was released in the or that part of the scene was cut when the film was released in the US. It's interesting that you bring up the shot of the, the mother dying because that it is it's I mean it is it's the hardest like left turn to comedy. It's like we're gonna make like I mean it's 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 kind of a ridiculous silly joke, but it reminds me of um this was a big moment as a film viewer for me in one of my favorite movies. I remember the first time I saw Pulp Fiction. There's one moment where he does something so strange in the movie that reminds me of that mother dying joke when they're in the car before they uh when uh, John Travolta and Uma Thurman are in the car before they go into Jack Rabbit's limbs and she says don't be a square and she makes a square <laughs> with her fingers and literally a square draws on the screen because it's like it's exactly that it's like he's pointing out you're watching a movie like like this is not real, you know, and, and it's that same type of thing. Like, like it, it, that was the, the, the same type of like joke where it's like that joke doesn't fit with what we're watching, but it happened. And, you know, and then you move on from it. Um, I, I also love the, the fact that, like I said, there is this, this sort of double revelation of his past. When we go back to the, um the cabin at the end, the hideout, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and you meet Richard because Chico Chico does seem a little more ridiculous than Richard does. Chico seems more um, bumbling and comic in kinds of ways, although I think Ernst and Momo seem even more so. Um, but you get this story about when the uh, the the people came to get him because he was he was a piano prodigy and they came to pull him out of this life to give him an opportunity as a, a pianist. And he tells the story about how his brothers attacked the car with, with slingshots and rocks <laughs> and how there were the, the comments about like, you know, he said like a couple of the people didn't know what to make of it. He said, the one woman said that they were animals. Mm. And he said, you know, it's as if you and Richard were telling me I was bound to, to, um, to come back someday for good. Mm. So, so it's like, he knew even from that moment that it's like, there is something about who I am <laughs> that, that, that is there's this gravitational pull here even though um even though there he is the he's a special he's special out of this group that he has this this sort of opportunity to uh to get out um and and this is where i thought of another movie i would pair this with and this one is a little bit more of a stretch but in that moment as i thought about that moment it reminds me of and it's 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 different story told in a different way but it reminds me of the movie goodwill hunting and that sort of struggle of like, here is somebody in this particular group, but who has a gift. And there's this struggle about, do I leave? There's all these people who want to take me out of this, or do I stay in what part of what part of who I am comes with me? Or how much do I give away what like my past and who I'm again, it's not the same type of movie, but but it but it, it I realized like, oh, that's an interesting tension that exists in both of these stories, but in very different ways. You know, that's a, uh, that, actually that's a really that's a really interesting uh, interesting pairing, Sam. And 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 you can if you you know if you want to go down that road, you can think about other films that kind of deal with what is your relationship to your origins. How do you overcome your origins? I mean, I, so I can go even further into left field and say, well, let's pair it with Gattaca, uh, and, and, oh, and, sure. and let's think about that. Let's think about how do you overcome your biology uh, through your own efforts. Um, yeah, and and and. I think another interesting thing, thinking about this as a uh, something pl- swimming in the the noir world, was I thought, okay, so let's let's look at women in this story because because in one thing that I don't think this movie has is uh, it's it's hard to find uh, maybe uh, archetypal femme femme fatale in this movie, right? But there are three significant. Uh, at least three women who play significant roles in the movie um Therese Clarice and and Lena all play um kind of interesting roles I think in terms of um the effect they have on his life or the role I mean Teresa Teresa is sort of the um I mean, you could almost think about past, present, future as you're mm-hmm. thinking about these three women. I mean, Teresa's represents his past um and his past as Edward um, that she either sacrificed or betrayed him to support his talent. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about what, like, like, like what is, what is sort of the meaning of that and the, and that her death and his, um, I was not his inability to act, but the choice that he makes, you know, leads to her being gone. Um, mm-hmm. a, a, as you point out, and that's this thing that haunts him, and that's the thing that sets up his presence. And then you have Clarice, who I think is um, such an interesting character because mm-hmm. she is yeah. both, you know, a 
she's a sex worker i presume (laughs) right i mean like like that seems to be but she's also like a very maternal figure for fido and it's you Mm -hmm. know and 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 a, a kind of partner in the present for uh for charlie and then lena She's the closest thing to somebody that you'd see in like out of the past or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, she is the kind of new girl in quotes, like the good girl, right. As opposed to the, the femme fatale. And she's trying to kind of bring him back to life. Um, she represents a kind of future, but it's also interesting because she's the one who in the, uh, the, the gravitational fates of this movie is the one who's fated to die. And that also seems interesting because I didn't expect that. You know, especially the movie's called Shoot the Piano Player. Yes. He's not the one that gets shot, but but somebody does. Yeah, and the uh, yeah the, the the poster for the film is a wonderful poster. And of course, it's got a picture of him at the piano with a big target on, on his back. Yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out about the fact that the film doesn't really have any femme fatales. Um, and I think that is where Truffaut puts his particular stamp on the genre, if you can think about it, if, if this is a genre, or at least his stamp on that set of stylistic elements. And that is, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a director who, um, who directs uh, strong women. Um, and, uh, and I think he's really interested in, in the women having uh, more agency than they typically have in, in in films noir because it really is to get back to the idea that the film is about the relationship between men and women it really is about that kind of give and take uh, between between the two and so he's really interested in the various ways in which Charlie has different kind of relationships to the women he has you know a very a very casual but it looks like kind of a healthy relationship with Clarice they you know they're just enjoying each other's physical company. Um, there's no emotional entanglement. He's got the very um, obviously emotionally uh, painful and complicated relationship, Therese. And then he has Lena, where I think they're both kind of trying to figure out, you know, where is that relationship going? And I would also say, another you know, one of the film we haven't talked about yet, which ties into this, is are the two songs in, in, in the film. Because you get that initial song, and it was also Truffaut's idea to subtitle it in French, uh, because uh, uh, because Bobby sings so fast. But that song has some double entendres in it that you don't get unless you speak French, which I don't. But I listen to a little bit of the commentary, and so um, you know what the woman is against the whatever it is the anti antibian or whatever that's playing off of French uh, slang for having sex. Um, so the film's all about, or uh, the song's all about sex. Uh, and then at the end, you get a much very different song with lines like, when my love turns to hate, you'll be sure to know. When my love turns to hate, I'll wear my cap as I go. Uh, which kind of reminds us, again, that's playing at the end with Lena, but it reminds us of his response to Therese. So it's uh, so Truffaut is interested in, in, very, uh, in, in a variety of ways that men relate to women, which is a little bit different from noir, whereas, you know, you get the femme fatale or you get the good girl, which is kind of what you get out of the past. And those are interesting doublings, but this is a little bit more, I think, complicated emotionally. Well, and that second song touches on the thing that Lena says about like, kind of all I ask is like, mm-hmm. when you stop loving me, tell me, Yes, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that song is, is almost a literal, like, like, mm-hmm. like mirroring of that. And, and there, there are, there's one other woman, which I don't even know if she has a name. I was trying to figure out what her name was. I don't know if she has a name and I don't exactly know her relationship to the bar, but it's the mm. woman who, yeah. um, I first, I thought it was like Klein's wife, but I don't know that that's true. No, she has some relationship there, but she doesn't seem broken up about his death. So no. yeah. Um, 
But that's interesting as we get to the ending of the movie because, like, we see that Charlie is back in the bar, and there's a new waitress, and that woman. So it's like it's like, uh, I it's almost like that's a representation of his actual future, not his dreamed future. That mm-hmm. that he is um, back here, and we, maybe we could talk about the ending in a little bit, like like mm-hmm. what like what you make of that sort of final scene. But uh, but I do want to point her out as a. Uh, a, a woman who doesn't have as much in this movie, but I find her really interesting as well. Um, and then the other, I mean, the other, one of the other interesting things about this movie is, and you touched on this a little bit is the characters of, of Momo and Ernst. Um, <laughs> and, and I saw this, this comment in multiple places as I was reading that during the shooting Truffaut realized he didn't like gangsters, which is funny making a movie <laughs> like this and, you know, and realizing, Oh, I don't, you know, so he tried to make them more, uh, more comical. Um, which is a, a weird fact, but I kind of love it because I do. He, I feel like he, for a long time in this movie, kind of kicks the teeth out of them. But that also makes them more interesting because um, they seem not only bumbling, but you kind of feel like maybe they're harmless mm, um, until right. the end when all of a sudden there is shooting and Lena dies. But up until that point, I think maybe they don't have it in them to pull a trigger. Like maybe, you know, and, and, and if you think about things like when, like they twice, they kidnap people and <laughs> twice the people get away. And the way that like that Lena and uh, Charlie get away is they just walk away. <laughs> you know, like that's, that is such, I don't know if that scene exists anywhere else in the history of storytelling, but that's such a funny scene that they, you know, that she hits the gas pedal. So they get pulled over. And as the cop is talking with them, they just kind of, they just kind of walk away. Or even the story that Chico tells about the robbery itself. Mm-hmm that they were working at an exchange house and these two guys came in to rob them and somehow Chico and Richard talked themselves into just being part of the gang, which tells you something about Chico and Richard, but it also tells you something about Momo and Ernst that like, they don't know what they're doing. Like, like there is not this big crime syndicate behind them. Like these are just people who are, have sort of fallen, kind of fallen into this. And I, so, so it, but I think it also, and this is to bond, the Bonnie and Clyde connection. It also punctuates that when Lena dies, it is kind of unexpected. Yeah. I didn't expect triggers to be pulled at that point. You know, I think that's exactly the line I was going to draw to Bonnie and Clyde because, as we talked about last week with that film, you know, the, they're not very good bank robbers. They're kind of bumblers, and yet they are involved in a lot of real bloodshed. And so, I think that. Um, Truffaut, you know, I think Truffaut, Truffaut is one of the first um, directors I can think of to do that with the genre, to actually take the chance of showing these characters as, well, they look like they're bumblers, they can't possibly be dangerous. Yeah, they've got it going, but they really don't know how to use it. And and at the end, not only the fact that, that they do use the gun, but the fact that it's Lena, of all the people that, that dies, um, that final shootout is kind of reminiscent of um, of, a, of another, well, it's not really a noir, but it's a crime film. It's kind of reminiscent of High Sierra. Uh, I think it's sort of uh, Truffaut tipping his cap to that film. Um, and I, one of the things, so this is a revelation I had this morning, and it made me love this film even more, is I feel like so much of this, so much of things happen in this movie in just these small little pieces. And it, part of this is the tonal shift that I feel like this movie is almost like a preview for a bunch of other movies. I would watch, mm. like I would watch the, 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 uh, the Ernst and Momo movie. Like that would actually, if, if the movie was about them, 
it would be really interesting. Like that would be an interesting, funny movie. If the movie was about Chico and Richard, well, that also is an interesting story. These guys who are, have a life of crime who like aren't being criminals get pulled in, in the weirdest way possible. Um, I think the, uh, the, the Therese story is this flashback element of this story, but that in and of itself is a story. And I think there's this moment when, um, when, uh, Charlie goes for his audition and he goes and he, you know, he waits at the door and he almost hits the the, the button and then the door opens and this mm-hmm. woman yeah. comes out playing a violin or, or carrying a violin. And mm-hmm. she had been in there auditioning with, uh, with the same, with Schmiel as well. Mm-hmm. And um, he stays on her for a yes. long time. Yeah. And now that we know things about Schmiel, like I sort of wonder, you know, kind of in uh, maybe Harvey Weinstein kind of ways, like, is that yet another story that that's walking past us that we're not getting to see? Like, what is that woman's story? What is Fido's story? Does Fido living out his own kind of 400 blows story in the midst of all of the, like, I feel like he creates a really rich world where I get glimpses of all of these things that it's like, I actually would watch that movie that I get just a piece of it. And now when, what, what was interesting then is like, so he centers on the piano player who in a lot of movies, when somebody walks into a bar or a saloon or something, the piano player is a background character, but this, he's the central character and we're following his story. And normally that's, you know, that is often a back. So I just thought like, that's, this movie is really effective in, in terms of building out a world with, without giving you too much. Well, I, I, I love the scene with the, with the violin, uh, the woman carrying the violin, because there's, so there's so many things going on there. And, and one is like, well, you know, maybe they could have made beautiful music together. Maybe, maybe if something had gone differently, they would have connected. But there's also, it kind of gets back to Truffaut's declaration of freedom in making this film. Hey, here's a beautiful woman. Let's take a long look at her. And he just and he just follows her for a long time, and it has nothing to do with the plot except he just wants us to look at her and enjoy her and think about, wonder what what might she be thinking about. But the other thing I want to say about that scene, you pointed this out, is um, you get three different views of Charlie about to press that button. So we have to also remind people or tell people that the cinematographer is Raoul Cotard, who of course was. Godard's cinematographer on Breathless. And there aren't a lot of techniques in the film that are reminiscent of Breathless. There aren't a lot of the quick cuts you get in Breathless. But that particular scene, it reminds me of the close-up of the gun uh, in, 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 in Breathless. Um, so I want to say that about cinematography. Also, the film was shot in the um, French version of, of, of Cinemascope, Widescope. And there are scenes where, even though they're interior scenes, I think especially the scene when Therese and Charlie or Edward confront each other right before she throws herself out the window, it's really important that it's a wide screen because you you kind of get to see the whole you get to see the whole room as they kind of pace through it, and you're able to get them in strong contrast to each other. And in the same time, in the same scene, Truffaut uses mirrors very interestingly, so she's both facing him and facing away from him at the same time. So there's other things going on in this film, just in terms of the way it's shot. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. There's a great short I saw on the criterion channel about the cinemascope thing. Um, And they were talking about how much of this movie is about the two shot. Yeah. So much of it is about two people next to each other in conversation. But then when you get to the flashback, 
how they they use then a triangle, a three shot, which fits the narrative, you know, where you get the shot in the restaurant of uh, Therese and Charlie in the front and Schmiel in the background. And then later you get um, Charlie and Schmiel and Therese in the for- in the foreground and how it's it's the the fl- that flashback is based around threes, but everything mm. else is based around twos. You get a lot of, um, you know, Charlie and Lena walking together and, you know, and he talked about with that widescreen allowing for people to kind of move through and occupy the space in different ways um, mm-hmm. rather than just a traditional kind of tight shot. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to to ask about. Um, so there's a great line that uh, Charlie says when he's back with his brothers, he says, I'm a killer in a family of thieves. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I want to think about Plin's death because that's such an interesting fight. Uh, to watch and then you get out into the uh, it's almost like they're aware they're in a movie for a second because they get out into the alley and they both kind of drop their weapons and it's sort of like what are we doing (laughs) but then but then plin comes to the realization it's like well how am i gonna walk back into this room and it's almost like sorry charlie you have to die so i can kind of save face a little bit in this Mm -hmm. and then and then charlie grabs the knife now the story he tells is that he was trying to stab plin in the arm so he would let go but if you watch it, that is not what happens. No, he stabs no. him firmly in the back, um, which I just find really interesting um, because either way, it's self-defense. Like you, if somebody is strangling you and you stab them, I think you could get get off on self-defense either way. Uh, but it is so interesting that it's like he is telling this lie. And I, I don't know how much he's convinced of the truth of that lie even, but it's so interesting because we see something that is so different than what actually happens. Well, and y- y- Yes, exactly. The other thing I, I like about that or I find interesting about that is that um, it's Truffaut kind of swimming against the Hayes Code, which he doesn't have to worry about. But but he knows that in, in American films, noir, you, once you commit a crime, you don't get away with, away with it. So it's interesting that the whole thing just kind of evaporates. It's like, oh yeah, it's fine. The witness is stuck up for you. You don't need to worry about it. So, so it, it, it's a real, it's it's another interesting misdirect, right? Because he's not going to pay for this crime. Um, it's ultimately not the source of either guilt or retribution for him. So it's like he gets he gets off in a way that very few uh, very few characters in a, in a film noir get off. Uh, he gets a free free pass on the killing. Well, it's interesting because that that is the first crime we see him that, that that he's actually attached to, other than you know potentially helping his brother escape. But he's escaping from other gangsters, so I don't think that's really. A, I mean, that's that's he's not really involved in that that much. And um, but that feels like the moment where the gravity pulling him home seems mm-hmm. inevitable. Then it's like, well, okay. I, he knows what he did, even if he's told this other story. And it's like, so that means I have to go oh, that past. I was running from is now part of me. And I, and the line, I'm a killer in a family of thieves. I mean, arguably murder is a worse crime than theft. So he's like, you guys yeah. are criminals, but I've done this. He's, he's really you know? bad. Yeah. And his brothers are like, wow, you're just like us now, you know, and and it's, they're, they're like kind of welcoming him in as if this is a kind of inevitability. Um, It makes me think about the other character we haven't talked a lot about is Fido, which I just, I find like a very interesting character in part because um, it's after, I think it's after Teresa's death that as he is sort of creating his new life as Charlie, the one thing he does is he's like, I'm going to get Fido out of there and I'm going to bring him to Paris and 
kind of give him an opportunity, but that he didn't do that before. But 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 it's at that moment. Um, and Fido's one of my favorite characters in this movie. I love the way um, he stands up to Max and or to to Momo and Ernst as they're uh, bragging about the things that they own. That's such a funny scene. That also reminds me of. Um, okay, here's here's how Tarantino has has affected me as a mm-hmm. as a film viewer. Though is I them the three of them sitting in the car made me think of. Uh, uh, Jules and Vincent and mm. um, and Marvin in the car. I was like, please don't have Fido get shot here, like accidentally, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like that's what would happen in a Tarantino movie, because it does. So, but instead they just have this argument about like that's not a Japanese metal scarf, and you know, and uh, uh, and then there's that great moment where they drive by Fido not knowing it, you know, yeah, and it's yeah. it's just this like 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 how much the story changes if if either side recognize each other, but he's, he's one of my favorites uh, little parts of this movie. And again, that's a movie I would watch as well is the, the Fido movie. Well, here's another pairing for you, Sam, as you were, as you were talking both about Fido and then also about um, the fact that Charlie turns out to be the worst criminal of all of them. And that is how if you pair it with the Godfather? <laughs> oh, and you, right? and, you, and, you, and you, and you think about, uh, you think about Al Pacino's character and his relationship to his family and all that. So it's, it's almost like they, it's almost like you, you've split the one character into two because you have him, he can't get out, but you also have the idea that he's going to be the one who does get out. He's going to be the one who goes legit. So both saving Fido is a little bit like that, but also being pulled back in is a little bit like that. So. Absolutely. So, okay. Uh, as our time is, is, is getting away from us here, what are your thoughts on the ending of this film? So this film ends with Charlie back at the bar. He meets the new young girl who's the waitress. And then he goes and sits at the piano and plays. You can't escape the past. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a cycle and it's, uh, and, and uh, he, okay. He tried his best to get out and he can't. Okay. And, yeah, I think it's fate. I think it's just, it's Sisyphus. I think he's accepting his fate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I got to tell you, I love this movie. Uh, I, 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 and again, the first viewing, I was like, it's fine. It's like, a, I've seen this, I've seen these kinds of movies, but there's maybe some interesting things, but the more I think about it, the more rich this text becomes. Uh, are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah. I just wanted to, I want to say two more things. One is just to, to talk a little bit more about the pedigree of the movie or its influence, because I ran across a really interesting uh, comment by uh, Uh, by a critic and he says that and this gets back to charlie's character he says um he's less shy than hesitant at the moment of truth forever surging with inspiration only to halt and retreat into doubtful reflection almost like he's kind of a hamlet character um and he says that Truffaut was ahead of his time in building an entire movie around this kind of tricky emotional dynamic right and then he connects him to, to clyde to warren Beatty's clyde but he connects him as well to Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle. Hmm. And the one you'll like, he connects him to Robert Forster's aging bail bondsman and Jackie Brown. Yep. Oh, well, now those are really, really interesting connections, which I never, never would have thought of. Um, so the other thing I want to say, kind of go back to where we started, and that is that I think this is a this is a great film um, to embody sort of the Artur aesthetic. Um, another critic says that. It's a delightful, puzzling, unclassifiable work, an improvisational homage that in, that in the end bears no stamp more clearly than that of its maker. And there's certain elements of Truffaut's own character uh, in, 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 in the character of Charlie. And, and the final thing is, I, I think 
Um, I, I talk a lot about film with my son and we talk a lot about what is our critical aesthetic. Um, and one of the things that bugs us is when people take films to tasks for not doing or being what they thought they should be. So in an interview with Truffaut, the, the interviewer asked him, he says, much of the criticism directed at the new wave concerns the insignificance of the subjects chosen. Why dodge the big problems of our age? And Truffaut says, you can think that my film is useless, a failure, worthless, anything you want, but I don't grant you the right to tell me that I should have made something else in its place or have dealt with this or that subject. You have to evaluate the film that I show you, that's all. And mm -hmm. to me, that, that, is a that is a guiding aesthetic, critical aesthetic for me. I wanna criticize what the filmmaker has chosen to make not say the filmmaker should have done this or should have done that. Now you can say if the filmmaker is going to do this, this is how the filmmaker should have done it better since that's what he or she set out to do. But I can't say the filmmaker shouldn't have made this film and should have made a different film. So. I like that. So we, we've talked a lot about pairings. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Um, one is a pairing question, which is you, you, you talked about movies that you would pair this with, but if you were to pair this with a noir that came before, what would you pair it with? Um, that's a good question. A noir that came before. Well, we've already talked about out of the past, so I can't say that again. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to pair it with one I mentioned a little while ago, and that is in a lonely place. Okay. Uh, and that's mainly based on the similarities between the Humphrey Bogart character uh, and Charlie in this film. Okay. And then if someone were to watch uh, another Truffaut film, let's assume they've seen the 400 blows. Cause I've seen that. What would be the next Truffaut film you think? Oh, I guess you got to do Jules and Jim. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm going to go back to remember this all, this all started with bank robberies, right? This all started with this whole run of film started with going crazy. Um, so I'm going to do one more bank robbery film. It's not about a, a bank robbing uh, male, female couple. It's about a couple of brothers, but it's 2016's uh, Hell or High Water, uh, which has the pleasure of many fine actors in it, most especially, of course, Jeff Bridges. Um, but anyway, that's uh, from a Scottish director, actually, uh, David McKenzie. I have not seen this movie, but this movie, people loved this movie when it came out. This was This made a lot of... Uh, kind of 10 best lists for the year and stuff. So I'm very, very excited for this. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this movie. Uh, and honestly, like I said, this is a perfect example of why I do this podcast because I would not have put the work into this movie, put the time to think about it. And this is not a movie that necessarily insists that you put a lot of thought into it, but man, did it pay off to think more about what's going on here. So thank you so much for recommending it. Thank you so much for this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about hell or high water in the video store.